Okay, here we are. This is the second episode of the Different Book Club series, reading and reviewing Todd Blodgett's Republican Crackhead. I'm Justin, I'm reading this horrible book, and I'm joined tonight by my friend Evan. Hey, God bless you for reading this horrible book. (laughs) And you'll be hearing about chapters one and two firsthand from me. Oh boy, yeah. I heard the prelude to the prelude to the introduction before, <laughs> uh, so looking forward to it. Uh, I also have a family connection. Uh, there is my dear aunt who has passed away, sadly, um, was married to a Blodgett. I do not oh. know if they were related, but uh, the person, I guess, I never met him actually, because she, I think, divorced him before I was really around, but... He went by the nickname Bubbles for some reason, and he was a raging alcoholic. Fun. Sometimes he would apparently like cough up blood frequently, and so my dad started calling him Bloody Bubbles. Jesus. <laughs> so I don't know how that dovetails in with Todd's book here, but I yeah, feel like there might be character. some parallels. I just did a control F on my PDF for bubbles and it's not finding any matches. So, okay. I don't think he comes up in this book. Well, and I don't know if he's actually related to the man, but yeah, yeah, it's very possible. It is. Especially given certain things that we know about him. (laughs) There's a little bit about uh, Todd's family in what we'll be covering today. Oh, but to get things started. uh, So with the, Willie Wilden series, I started every episode with uh, a review from somebody, like on the Amazon page for the book, and there are not as many reviews available of this book, but I did mention uh, Todd's hobby of uh, commenting on his own news articles <laughs> at NorthIowaToday.com. Commenting is a valid hobby. <laughs> Posting is a hobby. Yeah. So yeah, that's fair. So he does sort of like the more legitimate form of posting which is writing (laughs) bad opinion articles yeah and then he does the more like the loose kind of fun posting in the comment section on his own articles (laughs) so i'll I'll be uh sharing some of those at the beginning of a few of these episodes and the first one i have is it's on a piece he wrote called gaff prone biden's incurable problem hmm I think he has several incurable problems, <laughs> but he is gaff prone. So, <laughs> and Todd wrote this on March eighteenth, twenty twenty. I'm not going to actually read any of the article. I'm not going to read any of the other comments. We're just going to be left. Yeah, just go with, right to his fun comment. Like, yeah, only only the context given within the comment itself. So, the following day at three o four p.m., Todd commented on his own article in reply to Donkey. So that's the name of the other commenter. That sounds like a fucking Democrat to me. <laughs> it does. And Todd uses his full name as his like username in these comment sections. Respect. Mm-hmm. In reply to Donkey, your claim that Biden would beat Trump like a drum, but there won't be an election is ludicrous. Laughable, actually. There will be an election on November 3rd, which Joe Biden will lose if he's the nominee, as now appears likely. So he That's... got one one out of two. <laughs> yeah. When, when was... This is March, is that what you said? Yeah, about mid-March. Hmm. I was kind of on the same page <laughs> at the time. Yeah, I think most of us probably were. But, I mean, that's what Trump people do, is just glow in your face and tell you straight up you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think... 
Todd was more correct than I was at the time, because I think I would have doubted that we would have had a regular election. Yeah, I mean, that was pretty much up in, up in the air. Like, it was kind of a miracle that it even happened <laughs> to yeah. begin with, yeah. <laughs> given uh, everything. And I think all of the... Uh, I've already prepared like all the comments I'm going to read for the, the series. I, I do them in chronological order, so we, we'll see how Todd's opinions developed over the year. Mm, he's pretty prolific. He's out yeah, there, unfortunately. Many comments. <laughs> but now, without any further ado, we can discuss chapters one and two of Republican Crackhead. And we're going to do one first, and then two. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, these are kind of like... A longish chapters, like at least thirty pages each, but uh, he kind of repeats himself a lot, so I was able to condense this down pretty well. So starting with chapter one, uh, this chapter begins as kind of a a resume of Blodgett's career in legitimate GOP politics, because we know he goes a little bit. That's uh, what he starts with. Yes. Other than the three introductions. Well, right. <laughs> We've already got a little bit of uh, what happens later, but he's sort of listing all of the jobs he had on the inside of the GOP rather than on the fringes. Hmm. And it goes back all the way to when he was in college. So while Todd was attending Drake, uh, Neil Reagan offered to get him hired on his brother Ronald's reelection committee. And you'll recall that uh, Neil was uh, a friend of Todd's a friend of his who's 50 years older than him or so. Uh, And at the time, Todd was working for Senator Roger W. Jepson. Is that someone you're familiar with, Evan? Hell no. Okay. Uh, He was in the Senate before Tom Harkin. Harkin uh, knocked him out. Oh. Well, Tom Harkin served for quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. It had been the 80s, right? Yeah. uh, Yeah, actually, the 84 election that would have been. Okay. Uh, And that's actually the following sentence that I wrote, so I could have just kept reading. Uh, Tom (laughs) Harkin beat Jepsen in the 1984 election, so since his boss was no longer employed in the Senate, Todd called Neil to get a job with Reagan's presidential inaugural committee. Oh, that's a very important job, as we all know. (laughs) It's important to launder money from corporations through your inaugural committee. (laughs) And I'm sure Reagan was doing a lot of that, probably more than just corporations. Yeah, he probably had a great time. Hmm. Yeah, I can only imagine. (laughs) Well, the title of the book is Republican Crackhead, so we can (laughs) kind of just draw a pretty solid conclusion from there, I think, Mm -hmm. sort of activities in the inaugural committee. (laughs) Todd's, you know, ability to get this job, I consider this an example of meritocracy. He just (laughs) happens to know the president's brother, so (laughs) he calls him up. Uh, and then after the inauguration stuff was over, Todd then continued to work as a member of the White House staff. Uh, he turned 25 while he was working at the White House. I got a good quote about that. As I was delivering the White House news summary to the West Wing, Reagan wished me a happy birthday. His brother had told him. The White House chief of staff, Don Regan, noticed this, which made me feel kind of important. <laughs> I was going to say, he, like, immediately starts, like, listen, I'm friends. Oh, I guess he, in the first part, he was, like, I'm friends with Reagan. Yeah. It's, like, just, like, the main point of the book. Here's the conversation I had with Ronald Reagan. (laughs) Yeah. He he recognized my birthday. Speaking of, I actually share a birthday with Ronald Reagan, and they're going to try to name it Ronald Reagan Day. Oh, boy. like, if there's any political activity that you should be involved in, you should be trying to stop them from calling it Ronald Reagan (laughs) Day, just for my own sake. Yeah, that's... 
Have we talked about the photo of you flipping off the statue of Reagan on our podcast? I think, well, we mentioned it, I think, on the radio, Free South Dakota. Oh, right, right. Yeah. But yeah, you're not a fan of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> but yeah, please, for, for my be- my sake, please tell them not to name any states. Do not declare Ronald February 6th is not Ronald Reagan Day. Write your congressman. Change.org petition. Uh, right after this birthday thing, Todd, he then lists a bunch of 80s Republican figures that he met while he was working at the White House. And that list is James A. Baker, Lee Atwater, Ooh. Yeah, Haley Barbour, uh, Roger Ailes, Hell yes. Ugh. Ed Rollins, Mitch Daniels, Roger Stone. Hell yes. <laughs> Oliver North? Uh, he's not listed, though. Dang. That would have been fun, yeah. Uh, Andy Card, Ed Rogers, Ralph Reed, Debbie Steelman, Pat Buchanan, and Richard Vigury. I don't know that last one. He's just name dropping. <laughs> That's, I mean, I've already made that joke, but like he's literally just name dropping. Yeah, yeah. This is like a whole paragraph of just like famous people that I met in that, the 80s. Yeah, that maybe like the average person might recognize maybe two of those names. <laughs> right. I know like three or four of these guys yeah uh so after todd worked at the white house for a few years he then got a job with the hay adams joint venture sounds good (laughs) yeah this this operation he would travel the country buying donor reports from each state's secretary of state to compile into huge mailing lists for republican fundraising oh okay uh, and based on what I know of televangelists in the 80s, all of them getting busted for mail fraud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm assuming this is like some of the scummiest possible work Todd could have been doing at the time. Hell yeah. It's just direct mailers. Mm-hmm. Fucking. <laughs> I mean, he probably got some bites. I used to work as a, uh, well, I, I raised money for nonprofits, but one of them was the Archdiocese of washington oh dc which i'm pretty sure i think there was a particularly prolific pedophile priest in that yeah i i know more about the boston one but yeah DC, yeah I think, i'm pretty was sure also... there was also shit in dc so like i don't know i had some guy just like talk about how like he just was on the phone for like 15 minutes talking about how he hated how the church was like becoming more liberal about abortion or something (laughs) but then i think he still gave money anyway (laughs) (laughs) nice uh and yeah his uh, his experience uh getting in the direct mail game actually becomes very important later on but before then uh we got to get into todd beating lee atwater in 1988 so he already mentioned atwater but now he gets into like the circumstances surrounding his relationship with lee atwater This is a quote. He seemed to think about politics during every waking hour and found ways to make politics resonate with average Americans so they'd vote Republican. Along with Ronald Reagan, Atwater seemed to innately understand the thoughts of rank-and-file citizens. Years later, when some really jacked-up crackheads moved about with abnormal energy levels, (laughs) I'd think of Lee. (laughs) (laughs) away with words yeah this man who required no drugs to be hyperactive so lee atwater was you know as hyperactive as some cocaine addicts without the need for any cocaine <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah it sounds pretty in line with like i mean maybe he kind of predicted trump politics before well i mean i don't know we've talked about on our show reagan and trump are pretty mm-hmm. i would say trump 
is more picking up the Reagan torch than most Republicans would be willing to admit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even, like, lifting a campaign slogan directly from him. Yeah, true. (laughs) Uh, Todd really likes writing in Atwater's Georgia accent. So... Have he you heard really Lee loves, Atwater speak? Uh, yeah, he's got a yeah deep <laughs> southern drawl. I think you were about to say that uh, Todd really likes writing in <laughs> accents. Yeah, he and likes dialects. he likes yeah. accents and yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, for example, he uh, he has Atwater saying, asking Todd if he would like to go to work for the next president of the United States, and he spells it Y E W dash N I T E D United States. <sighs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Very subtle. Very subtle. <laughs> so uh Lee Atwater got Todd a job working for Bush's nineteen eighty eight campaign and eventually placed him under Debbie Steelman, who was Bush's director of domestic policy. And when he was making that decision, uh this is what Lee had to say to Todd about that. Issues drive campaigns, Todd, and I'm not gonna do the accent. <laughs> And this campaign will be very issue-oriented. No new taxes, tough on crime, pro-American military, (sighs) law and order, pro-Second Amendment. Maybe I will do the accent a little bit. Uh, (laughs) Support your local police, anti-ACLU, pro-capital punishment, support the Reagan agenda, be proud of the American flag, the whole nine yards. Full stop all the way. You'll be analyzing what Dukakis says and helping us devise ways to strip the bark off the little liberal bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, Todd Blodgett has never really expressed... I mean, he's a conservative, obviously, but, like, he, this chapter is literally just him describing all of the nepotism that allowed him to progress <laughs> through Ronald Reagan's fucking campaign and presidency. But Pretty then, much, like, yeah. he doesn't really, there's no reason for any of this to happen other than what Lee Atwater just said, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, stuffing garlic bread in his mouth, Lee, who I knew loved guns, said, man, you'll be making ammo. Now, what could be more exciting? Meaning that uh, Todd was going to be working in opposition research. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's important. Mm-hmm. So, like, he, like, what I'm saying is, like, he's just fully committed to being a sleazeball. He doesn't really... There's nothing at this point to indicate that he actually gives a shit about any of this other than just him, like, acquiring more power and moving up through the fucking ranks of being a sleazeball. Yeah, pretty much. He doesn't really get into, like, what of the conservative agenda he, like, actually believes in. It's He's all just, just about his... foot soldier. Mm-hmm. It's all just about his career advancements. Hell yeah, And, dude. and like, uh, <laughs> like, electoral strategy and shit. Fuck Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Atwater goes on to make a distinction between what he calls hunting dogs and kennel-fed dogs. <laughs> Fuck yeah, <laughs> dude. It's Todd. Todd's a hunting dog, I assume. <laughs> I yeah, I believe so. But he's That's why they he's put more him on the case. He's more applying this to like presidential candidates or like uh, oh, okay people running for public office. Essentially, like politicians who grew up rich or grew up not rich. Oh, uh, okay. So like Jeb Bush versus donald trump yeah the bush family Wait, he's never he mind sees as, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the bush family he sees as kennel fed which is you know correct and he li- he lists like uh nixon and abraham lincoln <laughs> okay are uh hunting dogs <laughs> okay makes sense and he's trying to like uh he's gonna try to paint bush as a hunting dog versus dukakis as a kennel fed dog because dukakis is like 
he went to Harvard and shit. I mean, Bush is the same, basically. Basically, mm-hmm. he's saying he's he's gonna like lie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, arching an eyebrow, Atwater stuffed some ravioli in his mouth. Before he'd fully swallowed it, he looked me in the eyes. <laughs> yeah, so he's going to push really hard on conservative social issues to try to like pull blue-collar voters away from Dukakis, which we know was a success, so congrats. <laughs> yeah, those Reagan Democrats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Willie Horton ads, we know that those uh, are... Was Todd involved in that? I mean... Uh, I I don't think so. I think that was like entirely Atwater's concoction. <laughs> uh, the usage of the convicted killer Willie Horton was my introduction to the power of race in political campaigns. Oh God! And this next sentence is really good. Not that Atwater was personally a bigot. He wasn't. <laughs> oh my fucking God, dude! No, he was just using it to his advantage. Mm-hmm. There's a distinction. Evan, I know you are familiar with uh, Lee Atwater's comments on the Southern Strategy, a very famous interview from 1981. <laughs> I don't actually remember, honestly. Well, this audio clip I'm about to play may jog your memory. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I just want to reiterate, uh, Todd says that, that this guy is not racist. You start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your backfire. So you say stuff like uh, force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now. You're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things. And the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. Oh, my God, and dude. Subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and that coded, uh, that, that, we're, that we're doing away with the racial problem one way or the other. Uh, you follow me? Because obviously sitting around saying uh, we want to cut taxes, we want to cut this, and we want is much more abstract than, than even the busing thing. Uh, and a hell of a lot more abstract than never knew, you know. Wow. Not that Atwater was personally a bigot. He wasn't. <laughs> That's that's crazy. That's so emblematic of like Republican politics, like as a whole. They went so long coding it, and then like Trump came and like blew some of that out of the water to a certain extent. Right, and he's not, you know, just saying what Lee Atwater's saying in that recording, but <laughs> he he did definitely pull them back a little bit into the more open uh, racial politics. Although he targeted more like Mexican people yeah well i don't know it's it's like lee atwater saying oh we make it more abstract we deal with it one way or another mm-hmm. <laughs> he knew what he so was doing so it's like that is actually less extreme than the trump shit to be quite honest yeah. in some twisted way which is horrible obviously but like he's like saying like oh like we can evade our way around it but still it's just the dog whistle politics i guess yeah it's this is still our major strategy but uh (laughs) we need to obfuscate it a little bit oh my fucking god uh so todd's job with the bush campaign then brought him to new orleans for the republican national convention of 1988 and this is just kind of a funny quote regarding that not ranking high enough to stay at the Marriott by the convention center, the campaign put me up for three weeks at the Olivier House on Toulouse Street. <laughs> so he was not important enough to get to stay at the Marriott. That was for oh the big weeks. <laughs> uh, following the 1988 election, Lee Atwater was named chairman of the RNC, and... <laughs> 
Todd describes him here as as energized as a team of six young, freshly awakened mules. Okay. <laughs> he writes very strangely about Lee Atwater. And Atwater brought Todd over to work for the RNC's Oppo Research Department because he did such a good job for the Bush campaign. And, quote, one of the first projects I worked on as a political analyst in the RNC's Oppo division was devising ways to defeat a former Ku Klux Klansman named David Duke. This was ironic, considering what was to come. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I and... Don Todd and the entire staff knew that Duke was a charlatan who hadn't changed his views. So this is more of the, we need to get rid of, like what, wasn't David Duke running in like the Republican primary or some shit? Yes, for the uh, Louisiana, Louisiana, like state legislature. So again, they're they're trying to, this he's a threat to them because he's just too far out, basically, which is mm-hmm. pretty ironic. Yeah, they were trying to... Yeah, I guess just get him out of the party because it looked bad. (laughs) And my favorite part of that is uh, calling David Duke a charlatan who hadn't changed his views. And given the full context of what we know of Todd Blodgett. What, you expected him to change his views? (laughs) Yeah, but also, like, that's how I view Todd Blodgett. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) I guess, yeah, 2020, 2021 is different than 1984 or whatever, 88, I guess. We're We're up to 88 now, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Todd's efforts to defeat David Duke were unsuccessful because David Duke won that election and was part of the Louisiana legislature for, I think, just one term. And so in 1990, the Republican Party assigned Todd to work for a congressional candidate in Fort Worth, Texas. And I noticed reading this part that there's kind of a distinction in this book between people that Todd refers to by name and people that he refers to vaguely without naming them. Like he calls the congressional candidate in Texas, the candidate I worked for. He doesn't name the person. (laughs) (laughs) And I I don't know. I haven't like found any sort of pattern to that, but I, I'm going to try to like remember to notice that going forward. Interesting. During the 1990 campaign cycle is when Lee Atwater had a seizure while giving a speech and was diagnosed with brain cancer. Uh, and the same night that that seizure happened, uh, <laughs> Todd met his future wife, Linda. <laughs> At least that's what I assume is happening, because this is the first time he mentions her he just says that they had dinner together and he asks her about atwater's cancer diagnosis and she thinks he's gonna die within a year uh the 1990 midterms were really bad for the republicans and according to todd uh the opposition research department was unfairly blamed by some so he absolves all responsibility from himself Mm. for (laughs) the republicans poor showing in 1990 Uh, But following that failure, uh, Todd wanted to take a break from politics, and he got a job as a sales rep for a friend of his, who he refers to as a DC businessman. So again, this person's anonymous. Do you think these are people like, he he must respect them too much (laughs) to put their name in this Um, book? (laughs) It's probably the few rare people that he would be ashamed to be associated with. (laughs) I I don't know about that. For whatever reason. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, it Man. might be because that they're like too extreme, or it might be just because they're fucking losers. You know, I'm thinking of it more the opposite way because he he's like openly associating with like very very horrible people, right? But book. then he's like and saying then, like, oh, like Ronald Reagan, like I was friends with Ronald Reagan, and like, or I mean, kind of like <laughs> Ronald Reagan. <laughs> I knew Ronald Reagan's brother, and Ronald Reagan knew of me because of that. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe these are people that he doesn't want to associate with those more horrible people through their connection to him maybe Hmm. or it's people that have threatened him (laughs) to not talk about them uh from 1993 to 1995 todd worked for a political humor magazine called slick times (laughs) oh no the babylon b yeah i had never heard of slick times so i looked them up uh and it looks like the only thing like they they don't publish a, a magazine anymore, but the only thing that remains of them is a website where they sell fake one billion dollar bills with <laughs> pictures of Donald Trump on them. Okay. <laughs> and this is from the website uh, celebrating the most astonishing political upset in American history. So they're a few years behind now. <laughs> <laughs> Here at Slick Times, we believe humor is the best defense against the fake news media and Hollywood liberals. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> Check out our collection of classic and collectible funny money that's sure to delight conservatives and annoy the snowflakes. Oh. They say that conservatives aren't funny, and they <laughs> consistently try to prove that. I mean, you could run this shit through an algorithm now. Like, it's just, it's the same shit. They haven't yeah. literally changed their messaging for like 20 years. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty indistinguishable from like a Twitter bot. Yeah. Just in the replies under a Biden tweet. Uh, shit started to get real in 1995. Todd accepted a job as an advertising and marketing consultant for Willis Carto's Liberty Lobby. Remember Willis Carto? I uh, was see the... The white supremacist guy who started the record label that he bought? Cardo didn't start the record label, but yes. Oh, okay. uh, Todd sort of acquires the record label from Cardo. Okay. <laughs> through a series of shady business events, <laughs> which I'll get a little bit more specific about later. But yes, Willis Cardo is a straight up Nazi, and the Liberty Lobby was his, uh, I believe, nonprofit. <laughs> So I don't think he paid taxes for the shit he was doing with the Liberty Lobby. Okay, the Nazi shit is coming, but on the bright side, Todd and Linda got married in June in Mason City. <laughs> so he, he mentions his marriage, but not any other aspects of his personal life. It's just like, this is these are the things that I was hired to do. It's Yeah, it's been more about his professional life so far, but that does sort of interfere with his personal life later on i would imagine <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah uh, i noticed here that todd has a strange habit of not capitalizing the last word of proper nouns for example mason city he didn't capitalize city and he does it several times throughout these chapters like hmm. later he goes to uh, galveston island and he did not capitalize island and i'm not going to point it out every time but it's obviously a thing that an editor probably would have noticed. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of Galveston, one of Todd's first assignments from Willis Cardo was to visit Sheeran Moody Jr. in Galveston, Texas. I think Sheeran is how you pronounce that name. Is this someone you've ever heard of? Uh, Is he related to Ed Sheeran? (laughs) 
<laughs> no. It's Sheeran. Uh, oh, okay. S <laughs> H E A R N is the first name. Sheeran. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, or Sharon, maybe? No, but he sounds like he probably is from somewhere in the British Isles. <laughs> yeah, I think he's American, but I, I don't know really much about him. But from this book and a little bit of Wikipedia research, I can say that Sheeran Moody Jr. was a real piece of shit. <laughs> uh, he made millions of dollars through all kinds of fraud. And to summarize him, he was dubbed the sleaziest man in Texas on the cover of Texas Monthly. <laughs> <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah, he was a client of Roy Cohn, who okay. is, you know, a famous piece of shit lawyer. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a quote about that here. After a few drinks, he reminisced about his old lawyer, Roy Cohn. Roy was Jewish, but he hated nearly every Jew he knew, Moody said. And that was uh, praise of Roy Cohn from God Moody. Damn. <laughs> uh, and he had a strong fascination with Hitler and Nazi memorabilia. And, in fact, he employed a bunch of neo-Nazis at the Moody estate. He has like a weird, like, kind of decrepit mansion in the middle of texas uh and a quote about his employees where'd that go so he meets some girl there i I don't know (laughs) and as her boyfriend carried my briefcase and luggage up the stairs i noticed that his bicep was tattooed with a swastika as he sat down my luggage i noticed that his gold ring featured a confederate flag emblem more than once the two dudes and the girl and another staffer greeted one another by saying 88, neo-Nazi code for Heil Hitler. So he's already surrounded by people who, like, are far enough into this culture that they've got tattoos and are saying 88 regularly. (laughs) So he just, like, jumped headfirst into this. And Todd was visiting Moody because Moody wanted to deed some land to Liberty Lobby. But while they are negotiating this, a lawyer that... Willis Cardo had on retainer named Howard Singleton shows up at this place and stops the deal because Todd brought in some guy he knew from boarding school (laughs) 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 to oversee the deal. What? So he's just like, (laughs) wow, he just brings in, this is my my buddy from fucking boarding school. (laughs) This is a guy I first got drunk with. Let's do some like neo-Nazi like negotiations together. He's yes. cool, I, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Some kid he knew from school was, like, now a landman in Texas. <laughs> yeah, and I guess, like, Todd's just like, hey, what's up, man? I'm doing Nazi shit. You want to come make a deal? <laughs> Goddamn. Well, honestly, yeah, you shouldn't. I mean, it sounds like Todd is not, maybe not the most trustworthy character. <laughs> but before you go thinking anything bad about Howard Singleton... Todd has this to say. Singleton was no neo-Nazi, and his relationship to Cardo and with Liberty Lobby was strictly professional. Oh my fucking god. I wonder if Todd has any kind of motivation for insisting that not everyone who works with Nazis is racist themselves. It's just business. Yeah, he's telling himself. He's just trying to convince himself, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point of the book, I, I presume. Yeah, it's like, here's all the terrible shit I did, and this absolves me of all my yeah, sins. Yeah. I'm confessing. Purely professional. <laughs> There's no ethical considerations, and nor nor should there be. Right. Sorry, but bro, it doesn't work that way. 
But also, no one's reading this book. Obviously, like you said, there's no fucking editor. Yeah, yeah. I, there's, I, I believe there were like two or three reviews on Amazon. Uh, the guy who edits North Iowa Today presumably read some of it, and then there's me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the land deal that Moody wanted to to do with Liberty Lobby that never went through because Moody died a few months later and now I'm starting to notice a pattern Lee Atwater died within a couple years of meeting Blodgett and now this Nazi guy dies within a year of meeting Todd Blodgett interesting (laughs) this man is poison although he's poison for horrible people so maybe it's a good thing yeah that's yeah (laughs) Uh, okay so back at the Liberty Lobby headquarters in DC uh, one night Blodgett's like working late in the office and he overhears his boss, Willis Cardo, on the phone. And here are some excerpts from that phone call. <sighs> <sighs> There's not a day that goes by I don't feel awful that those fucking Jews won World War II. A little bit later, Cardo says, We're going to prove that the defeat of German National Socialism was a disaster for white people worldwide. So Todd overhears this, and then... Once I was outside the Liberty Building, facing Independence Avenue Southeast, I realized that there was no doubt. My lucrative client was a pro-Nazi hate profiteer whose professed paleoconservatism was merely a veneer for an unapologetic, aggressive, Hitlerian agenda. My worst fears were now confirmed. <laughs> what a fucking idiot. <laughs> it it wasn't you... until he overheard this yeah. phone call. <laughs> what a fucking moron. I mean, obviously, like, he... He's a fucking. He knows. He knows all this. Sh- like, yeah. I mean, this is he's purely lying. for his own benefit, <laughs> but also makes him look fucking stupid as shit. Yeah. If you do like any research on Liberty Lobby, uh, which was founded in 1958, and their weekly newspaper, The Spotlight, which they started publishing in 1975, and again, we're in the early mid 90s now with Todd. You can see from doing any kind of research that it was pretty well known what kind of like views and policy this organization was pushing <laughs> well before Todd was working for them. So I, I very much doubt that he was ignorant of this. And he also is describing overhearing this phone call after he describes <laughs> his assignment going to talk to a guy who had Nazi shit in his house and people were saying 88 in his employ. Uh, So after this, a big chunk of the chapter details Blodgett and Cardo recovering stashes of money and laundering it. It's kind of interesting to read about, but it wouldn't be interesting for me to just, like, repeat all of it. (laughs) But one little bit of it I'll tell you about. Blodgett, he gives some, like, recollections of an old warehouse in Queens, New York, where a guy named Vince... And I guess Vince is a pseudonym. He's protecting this guy's identity for some reason also. Uh, But this guy, Vince, he regularly hosts an illegal poker game. And hides a stash of gold coins on Willis Cardo's behalf. (laughs) And here's just a few things that uh, Todd observed in this uh, illegal casino warehouse. White cloth napkins were at three places, each encased in a bronze napkin holder with a silver swastika at its center. This is just so trashy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Vince was about 65, maybe 70, of Italian descent and a rich neo-Nazi. He had slicked back white hair, a thin mustache, and wore thick wire-rimmed spectacles with bifocal lenses. He wore a red smoking jacket, smoked Dunhill menthols the entire time, 
and immediately made it abundantly clear that he hated all Jews. Never would have imagined. (laughs) A life-sized black and white photo of Benito Mussolini adorned a wall. (laughs) So, again, it's just tacky. Like, (laughs) even, I mean, you can't discount the Nazi shit, but even discounting the Nazi shit, this shit's fucking tacky. It's like it's like uh, having fucking like Pulp Fiction uh, posters in your dorm room. <laughs> it's a Scarface poster, yeah. <laughs> You're like living up to the stereotype too much. <laughs> it's like playing a, a Wolfenstein map. <laughs> <laughs> and then a couple... I, I think I have three more observations here, yeah. Uh, the white ashtrays at each table were originally made for members of Hitler's Luftwaffe with a black swastika emblazoned in their center. Again, this is a Wolfenstein 3D assets. Just strewn <laughs> about this warehouse. A life-size mural of a of Adolf Hitler addressing a huge crowd covered an entire wall. This wall was 60 or 70 feet long and at least 15 feet high. Think about how fucking Dude, big that is. <laughs> this sounds like Second Life. This sounds like a fucking Second Life guy. He's like, I'm going to roleplay as, like, the coolest neo-Nazi ever. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, on the opposite wall was a Confederate battle flag and a Third Reich flag, separated by a gigantic swastika. Listen, make up your fucking minds. <laughs> is there a separate Third Reich flag from the... Uh, German Nazi flag? Uh, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's like the Iron Eagle thing, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, on the side walls were murals featuring images of Charles Lindbergh and the Nazi-funded American priest uh, Charles Coughlin, uh, George Lincoln Rockwell, and what appeared to be SS soldiers and members of the Hitler Youth surrounded by shapely, blonde, blue-eyed Nordic girls. Again, sounds like Second Life. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, One more. Two walnut display cases enshrined photos signed by Hitler and books bearing his autograph. Uh, Taking up an entire built-in bookshelf were old pro-Nazi books and tomes about eugenics. A first edition copy of the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, signed by the inventor Henry Ford, was prominently (laughs) displayed in the other case. Are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) Uh, Two first edition copies of Mein Kampf in German, signed by Adolf Hitler, were also displayed. That'll get you a bundle on the market. (laughs) First edition copies. So he's like, he's like, yeah, like... I was, like, associating with these people. Yeah. But, like, listen, they had the coolest Nazi (laughs) memorabilia that you could possibly have, dude. They had all the collector shit, like... It's really funny (laughs) to imagine Adolf Hitler at a book signing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, and this is pretty early on in Todd's association with these people, and he continued working with them for quite a while. (laughs) After witnessing crazy Nazi house. He was so impressed (laughs) with the shit. All right. So while Blodgett and Cardo are visiting this guy, Vince, Vince brings up resistance records. Cardo wants to get involved with this record company uh, to try to make it kind of like a recruitment arm for the white supremacist movement. Went over some angry young white men with some angry young white music. In his words, he calls this building the next generation of racists. 
Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And Todd says, to white supremacists, the term racist isn't shameful. They speak it with pride. (laughs) This is like the equivalent of like the CIA putting money into like Jackson Pollock. (laughs) But it's like instead it's just like, I mean, I I don't know. Have you listened to any of the uh, Nazi music that these folks have produced? I can't imagine it's any good. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I, I think it's mostly like shitty hardcore punk but racist yeah. <laughs> yeah i think the the closest i've ever come to listening to any of this is watching american history x <laughs> and i guess green room probably had some god uh cardo he wants to send todd to detroit to meet with the guys who run resistance records uh one of these guys is named george birdie and according to cardo at the time uh birdie will soon be in prison he had been convicted of assaulting a Jewish protester. And then Willis adds, too bad he didn't kill that. Mm. There's a slur for Jewish people here, the K word, uh, that K word bitch, Willis added. Again, very cool people that he's associating with willingly. <laughs> and uh, he wants Todd to kind of like wine and dine these people <laughs> in Detroit again. Uh, Cardo says, Hell, take him to strip clubs, rent him some hookers, and let him splurge at the best steakhouses in that N-word infested dump. And this is N-word with the hard R, printed. I believe for the first time in this book, with the hard R. But not the last. (laughs) (laughs) Not even close. I can imagine. (laughs) All right, so uh, Blodgett meets with these guys in Detroit. He does not really provide a lot of details about that, which is sad. I was hoping for strip club stories. (laughs) Uh, And then he returns to D.C. and discusses strategy on acquiring this record label with Cardo and lawyer Mark Lane. Do you know who Mark Lane is? No. Okay, this is, like, really crazy. Like, I don't really know anything about this guy, but he worked with the Liberty Lobby in the 90s. And I looked him up just to, like, I wasn't really familiar with him. I looked him up, and this guy, Mark Lane was elected to the New York legislature in 1960, and he was arrested as a freedom writer in 1961. Huh. So he, so was he like, had, like, a change of heart? Yeah, I guess. And he's also Jewish, by the way. But he was arrested in the South, like, as an anti-racist activist in the 60s. And after JFK's assassination, he became kind of a well-known conspiracy theorist oh. on that subject. Like, he has multiple books about the JFK assassination. And then he worked with the most racist guy in the country, I guess. Very weird. Yeah, yeah. While they're discussing strategy, Mark Lane proposes organizing boycotts of any, like, record stores that refuse to stock resistance products. Oh, God. Yeah. Like, I can imagine just, like, three, like, smelly skinheads, like, (laughs) showing up outside of a record store. (laughs) yeah like no one gives it like i can't imagine that that would have any sort of actual effect on their business or anything yeah no i like what i know of uh you know white power music in the 90s it was pretty much all like mail order (laughs) i don't think i don't think you could pick it up at a brick and mortar establishments yeah but cardo really liked the idea of organizing these boycotts and he said uh it'll be like hitler burned down the reichstag i guess (laughs) What? That's awful generous. And then he said to Todd, Blodgett, that's why this bearded, N-word-loving, brilliant Jew is on my payroll. 
Mark Lane smiled. Wow. Yeah, he enjoyed being referred to this way. <laughs> Very progressive. They accept Jewish people as long as they're also sufficiently racist. Right, yeah. Yeah, you've got you've to gotta make up for it by hating battles. other racists. <laughs> uh, the day after Todd met with the resistance guys, their offices were raided by the feds because they weren't paying sales tax. <laughs> Imagine being that, like, just brazen. <laughs> like, not only are you a like a neo-Nazi organization, but you're also not going to pay your taxes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like, it makes sense, but still. Yeah, I'm noticing there's kind of just like a trail of failures behind, <laughs> behind Blodgett. <laughs> okay, so that's uh, the raid from the feds that delays their business dealings. Uh, but in the meantime, Mark Lane instructs Todd to start working with a new fundraising firm, uh, for Liberty Lobby's subscriber lists. So basically what's going on here is Liberty Lobby rents out their subscription list to other organizations to prey upon. So this is more of the direct mail shit. Mm-hmm. Same stuff he was doing before for the Republican Party, he's now doing for the... Uh, well... <laughs> Whatever you want to call them. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say... <laughs> Republican party. <laughs> the Liberty Lodge. It sounds like a cool place to hang out with your bros. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Cardo, he really liked making a bunch of like shell corporations and stuff to hide money all over the place. Yeah. Uh, one example of this is... Okay, yeah, this is, it's sort of like a list of all this different shit. Okay, as court documents and sworn depositions later revealed... Some of this cash came from Cardo's Kayla Corporation. More was from Cardo's tax-exempt Foundation to Defend the First Amendment and from Cardo's Sun Radio Network. Another source was his Government Educational Foundation and a nonprofit entity called the Foundation for Economic Liberty. So he has just like a ton of these different organizations, and I, I can't imagine he's employing more than a handful of people. I'm uh, kind of surprised that Ron Paul hasn't been mentioned at this point. <laughs> he hasn't come like, up I'm yet. just thinking of like the quaint idea of like, you know, well, I mean, it's like zines or whatever back in the day where you have like an actual physical subscriber list. Right. But I can't help but think of the uh, famous Ron Paul newsletters. Yeah, absolutely. I'm surprised that Todd Blodgett hasn't talked about, you know, trying to poach his fucking subscriber base. <laughs> so in the tradition of making all of these different uh, organizations to kind of obscure who is doing what, he started a corporation called AAA Names, or AAA Names, I guess. Trying to show up first in the fucking phone book or what? <laughs> I guess, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but he, he makes this uh, new... Seems like a bad idea. <laughs> ...corporate entity to take ownership over the subscriber lists. And there's a quote. After meeting with Lane, I visited the offices of Philip Zodiates. I don't know how to say this name. Uh, in Waynesboro, Virginia. Mr. Zodiates owned Response Unlimited, a direct marketing firm which specialized in raising money for right wing conservative and religious clients. He was no racist. <laughs> That's a phrase I've heard a few times now. Where does this guy draw the line? Like, I would just like to interview him and wonder, like, where do you draw the line on this shit? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Phil and his wife were Republicans who had adopted several children of color. 
Oh, so that's that's why. He, okay. <laughs> uh, Zodiac was concerned about his firm being associated with Willis Cardo, Spotlight, the IHR, and Liberty Lobby. And as Mark suggested, I told him that Liberty Lobby's lawyer was Jewish and that FDR's son-in-law had been its chairman. That did the trick. <laughs> what? This guy wasn't racist, but he uh, he flipped pretty quick when I told him we had a Jewish lawyer. A Jewish, we have, <laughs> I have one Jewish friend. He's very he's very racist. Please be assured, <laughs> but he's Jewish. Okay, so after we talk about the mail lists for a little bit, we get back to recovering stashes of money and laundering it. Cardo paid six hundred and fifty thousand dollars to the aging Nazi Francois Genot who had been Adolf Hitler's personal banker for his assistance in securing and advice on how to hide those funds. So that's like a a Swiss banker who Mm. helped out the Nazis. Francois Genot, I assume is how you say that. Uh, Cardo's plan was to take a bunch of his money, which is all in like cash stashes hidden all over the place. He's got like millions of dollars hidden away. And he's going to take this money give it to a bunch of different people so they can buy chips at casinos with it. (laughs) And then he lets them keep a cut once they like cash out the chips or something. Todd got a $30,000 cut for just one of these casino trips. So they're dealing with high volumes of cash here. Is this anything different from what Deutsche Bank does on a (laughs) daily basis? Not really. They're a perfectly legal over-the-board operation, so (laughs) I don't see why we'd have a problem with this. Um, Had Cardo ever learned that some of that money later ended up in the hands of black drug dealers, he'd have probably had a stroke. (laughs) (laughs) Once again, Todd reminds us that he doesn't hate black people. He buys drugs off of them. (laughs) Blodgett refers to some of this hidden cash as, quote, dirty dough and other times as, quote, dirty dollars <laughs> in back-to-back pages. Just funny, you know. Like you need to specify. You need more, a larger variety, I'd say. <laughs> uh, he does that weird capitalization thing again with New York City. City is not capitalized. Bank Secrecy Act. Act is not capitalized. Atlantic City, he doesn't capitalize city. It's only notable because he does it over and over again. It's a strange quirk. Sounds like you're being a grammar Nazi, (laughs) Uh, which is better than being a (laughs) neo-Nazi, to be clear. Okay. Again, I'm I'm only talking about it because it's like such a weird habit and a pattern. It it is. Yeah. It's like you can only capitalize what, like one or two words in a row. Three is too many. And it doesn't matter like how many it is. Like if it's a proper noun with multiple words the last one is the only one he leaves uncapitalized. I don't know what's going on. And speaking of weird quirks, he refers to 9-11, as in the terrorist attack. The 9-11. He refers to it as, quote, 9-11-2001. (laughs) (laughs) Like multiple times? (laughs) Only once, but it's like, it's a very cumbersome way to refer to it. Here's the sentence. After 9-11-2001 and again in 2011, the U.S. government really clamped down hard on money laundering. And there's also like commas before and after 2001. It's just very strange to try to get through that sentence. Mm. Uh, And Todd, again, he really, really wants to assure us that not all of Cardo's business associates were racist. We've got uh, this guy named Fred. Uh, Fred Blahut is the guy's name. He was an editor for The Spotlight, which was like their Nazi newspaper. 
Fred, whom I trusted and never knew to be wrong about Cardo, was in very poor health and only worked for Liberty Lobby because he needed the money. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, don't you all need that's, the money? That's the only source of money. It's <laughs> the, the only, only way. Yeah, like... <laughs> These people are just destitute. The only thing that they could do to make money was to like join a neo-Nazi organization <laughs> and like just do favors for this rich asshole. Yeah, yeah. And then again, it always amazed me that with the exception of Mike Piper, none of the Liberty Lobby staff knew or cared to know about Cardo's clandestine illegal activities. Bullshit. Why should they care? Why should they care? They're in it for the money. Again, that's I mean, professional. That's professional. That's not ethical. <laughs> they, don't, they don't care about that. I think he's just trying to let these people off the hook. <laughs> yeah. Well, good luck. <laughs> okay, and he mentioned uh, Mike Piper in there. So he tells us a story about meeting Mike Piper. And Mike is one of the people who is hiding a stash of Cardo's cash in his apartment. And this is... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I guess I'll just say a uh, content warning for transphobia, kind of. It gets pretty weird. On the morning of my first Cardo-sponsored trip to Atlantic City, I met Willis and an illegally armed neo-Nazi thug at Cheryl's Cafe. Cardo told me to walk over to Piper's apartment, which was a block away. Willis said he and his pistol-packing Nazi would be there in about 20 minutes. We'll get the cash and bring it back here, Cardo said. And I just want to note, every time he refers to Willis Cardo in that excerpt there, he alternates using his last and first name. And if you're not, like, focused, it seems like he's talking about two different people. <laughs> hmm. That's weird. Mm -hmm. We long for the, like, writing ability of Joseph Dobrian. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Dobrian is a much better writer than this. Uh, moving on, Piper warned... Breathe one word to Willis about my guest, Todd, and the Des Moines Register gets a juicy story about how the <laughs> son of a top Iowa Republican lawmaker raises major money for Jew haters. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the Nazi people knew about Blodgett's family <laughs> and his more legitimate connections. Oh, and, of course. It's called leverage. It's yeah, exactly. When you're doing this sort of illegal shit. Yep, they've got some blackmail for him, for sure. Okay, so uh, he's warning him about not telling Cardo about his guest. So let's get into the guest. Seconds later, a barefoot, 30-ish, effeminate black dude wearing a ladies' negligee, a cheap necklace, and bracelets emerged. Slipping on a Washington Redskins t-shirt, he bitched about being abruptly put out. Piper handed him three $100 bills. And again, <laughs> content warning, the tranny wore earrings and his eyelids were lined with green eyeshadow. My jaw dropped upon seeing the spectacle. In the guy's unzipped duffel bag were a blonde wig, padded bra, and high-heeled red shoes. He had on bright red lipstick, and his fingernails were painted yellow and blue. Hey, how you doing, honey? He asked. And he's, you know, misgendering this person over and over and over. <laughs> mm -hmm. Fine, sir, I replied, pointing to the door. Offended, he said... Oh, and he's explicitly misgendering now. Absolutely, yeah. Like, to this person's face. <laughs> yeah. And I guess this person had a lisp, so here's how he gets to that dialogue. Oh, God, I can only imagine. <laughs> Offended, he said, Firth of all, Thweedy, this gorthith girl is not no thur. <sighs> he has absolutely no respect for this person at all. Just because they are not uh, conforming to the gender they were assigned at birth. Pointing to himself, he continued, 
second and please listen to what i is saying this sweet girl is named i'm gonna cut off the lisp now is named sabrina uh does sweetie understand as he struggled to squeeze into a dark green tight-fitting skirt i cracked up okay sabrina still laughing i shut the door and said piper does willis know you're gay or would he and David Duke and your Spotlight fans approve of you sleeping with a black homosexual transvestite? I got no response. This is very 90s, you know. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine seeing this movie in a mainstream comedy from 1994. <laughs> uh, it's pretty disgusting, the way that he talks about what I hope is like a fictional person and no one had to suffer <laughs> in this way, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not... Uh surprising i guess like i'm kind of surprised that he's surprised like it's just kind of like the sort of like ridiculous 90s decadence shit i guess yeah yeah an associate of a super like ultra conservative neo-nazi organization is secretly sleeping with a black trans woman yeah like he said earlier he was surprised that uh or that he was saying that cardo would be mad if he found out that some of his money was going to black drug dealers right yeah. It's like you deal with like it's like lowest common denominator shit. Mm-hmm. Uh again, uh, recapping all of the details of this money laundering would be very tedious, but one fun fact is the method that they were using with the like casino chips and stuff is called smurfing, <laughs> which is not a term that I was aware of before this. Uh the people involved were using passwords over the phone to make arrangements like where to meet up, what to do, all that shit. Uh, and Cardo chose the passwords Ava, Clara, and Blondie. Oh, God. So all, like, Hitler-related words, which is, like, super corny to me. Todd points out that because Cardo was helping his collaborators cover the tax bills that resulted from cashing out these casino chips, uh, and he was issuing them false donation receipts from one of his tax-exempt nonprofits, uh, that means U.S. taxpayers were subsidizing all of this Nazi shit which is fun to know. Hmm. And it's not a big deal that Todd let this happen and helped <laughs> helps him facilitate all this. And in fact, Todd reveals that part of his deal with the FBI is that he can't be charged for any crimes that he committed <laughs> prior to working with the FBI. How convenient. Isn't that great? Uh, and then in the final two paragraphs of chapter one, he abruptly begins talking about crack cocaine <laughs> because that's how you transition to the next chapter. You just suddenly start talking about a different subject. So here we are in chapter two. He jumps ahead in the timeline to October 2001. This is about seven weeks after the 9-11 attacks. He refers to 9-11 with just 9-11, like a normal person this time. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we're brought into the middle of this scene suddenly. Todd is being held at knife point by another crack addict in a crack house in Washington, D.C. The switchblade-wielding, oversized crackhead had the home field advantage. He was from the hoods of Baltimore. I'm from Iowa. <laughs> God. Anyone from Baltimore could kick our ass easily. Well, I mean, you and I specifically. That's Oh, absolutely. <laughs> certainly true. <laughs> uh, so this guy that's holding him at knife point, his name is Tyree, and he is a huge black man. So as you would expect, Todd handles Tyree's dialogue with a lot of grace and sensitivity. <laughs> For example, so this, this is Todd speaking to start. Come on, dude, I said. I've got to go. 
Check yourself, whitey, before I breaks my foot off in yo butt. What I say, y'all ain't going nowhere. Least not till my boy get here, you feel me? In ghetto jargon, feel me is slang for understanding what's been said. <laughs> God. <laughs> so he's writing this for an audience of like 85-year-old I mean, I, white yeah, people. I have no idea what the audience is for this book. <laughs> Three years as a junkie in the hoods enabled my fluency in Ebonics. The crackhead was jonesing, which is when a drug abuser's body wants more drugs but doesn't have any. That's a Jones estate. Dude, I asked, what makes your Jones my problem? This here switchblade. So they go back and forth like this for a while. Um, The basic conflict here is that Tyree is waiting for his crack dealer to arrive with more crack. And he doesn't want Todd to leave until that transaction takes place. Todd makes a habit of explaining all of Tyree's slang. For example, in ghetto parlance, a minute means anywhere from 60 seconds (laughs) to about five years, depending on the judge. God. God, yeah. And in the hoods, a crib isn't only something a baby sleeps in, it's also a home. God, Jesus Christ. (laughs) This is 2020. I know. (laughs) He published this about a year ago. (laughs) Uh, And while he's being held at knife point, Todd injects a couple more excerpts here about how not racist he is. Even while professionally infiltrating the Aryan nations and the Ku Klux Klan and hanging out with the world's most violent racist skinheads, I had never heard black neighborhoods described as, quote, N-word hoods. This is with the the A instead of the E-R. Because Tyree referred to his own neighborhood as a N-word hood. Uh, Having been raised as a church-going conservative Presbyterian in a traditional (laughs) home where the N-word wasn't spoken hadn't prepared me for the frequency with which I was hearing the term. It was a close call between which of my acquaintances used it more, the racists that the FBI paid me to spy on or the gangbangers with whom I got high. The guys in the hood probably had the edge. It was said more by blacks I knew than when Chris Rock played to a packed auditorium. (laughs) God damn. Yeah. Black people, they say the N-word sometimes. It's like... Astonishing. (laughs) How... Yeah, it's like he's simultaneously, like, sheltered and then just, like involved in some like crazy shit (laughs) like how are you this stupid how are you this naive about it yeah he's literally working with nazis and smoking crack every day (laughs) he's and he's trying to be like i'm just a iowan boy from the suburbs i guess that's what i mean about lowest common like this is stuff that like everyone in every class or demographic of people enjoys on some level it's not a fucking there's no like right yeah yeah it's like He's hanging out with, I guess, like salt of the earth type people of various <laughs> backgrounds. Yeah. And they have a lot in common, it turns out. Mm-hmm. Leah Which is what funny he was talking that, about. Like in the context of like still being a racist while you're like actively like I don't know, he's just like shocked <laughs> at this stuff. Yep. All the contradictions in his life are building up. Yeah. Uh and then uh Tyree accuses him of being a a honky who hates black people, which he's obviously not far from the truth. But Todd retorts with, for someone who supposedly dislikes blacks, I sure spend lots of time with them. 
And then Tyree says, I ain't saying you hating on us. Y'all's okay. I mean, for a white dude. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. So so even in this, he's like, look, the black guys kind of approved of me. Like, they thought I was cool. (laughs) Um, Eventually, Tyree makes it clear that he is holding Todd there against his will because he knows that Todd has some powerful connections and therefore probably has some money to buy some crack. Quote from Tyree. Dog, my bitch done tell me y'all's daddy done gots himself a fancy job with the president. (laughs) I feel so disgusting reading this. (laughs) You sent that in the group chat and it's, no one speaks that way. No, it's insane. It's like just so over the top. It's like Mm -hmm. some shit you would see in like Jim Crow. Yeah. Yeah. Like literature. This is like an A. Wyatt man cartoon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, she say him some kind of judge or something like that. Do that be true. <sighs> Todd confirms that his dad works for the White House. And uh, continuing, Tyree says, so knowing presidents done running y'all family, I ain't never met me no Republican crackhead before. So that's the moment where he looks at the camera and says the title of the book. <laughs> Uh, what would Ronnie say if him knowed you smoking crack in this hood, getting high with N-words? <laughs> Dare, dude. <laughs> yeah. And Todd says, he'd probably say, I should have just said no. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah Extremely <laughs> dare, yeah. <laughs> and I do want to note specifically that when, uh, that time when Tyree said presidents, it's spelled here in the book as P-R-E-Z-Z hyphen I hyphen D-I-N-T-S. Presidents. Like, that's not even, you wouldn't even say that any differently than you would just say the right. word spelled normally. Yeah, you're just phonetically <laughs> spelling the same word. Yeah, you that. just have to say it racistly. <laughs> uh, so, Todd, uh, once it's clear, like, what the situation is, he diffuses it by just giving Tyree some money. Uh, here, I said, as I stuffed the bills into the addict's hand... These Benjamins are yours. They'll cover an eight ball with enough left over for smokes, and then some. The big man smiled, exposing two chrome teeth, and returned his knife to his back pocket. Money makes the world go round, I guess, you know? Yep. Uh, so Todd leaves the crack house. He needs to go meet with his FBI handlers after spending a whole night smoking crack. <laughs> it's t- time to get back to work. Uh, but on the way to the car, Todd tells us just a little bit about how cool he is. <laughs> After 30 months as a junkie and 18 months infiltrating the KKK, neo-Nazis, and racist skinheads, I was accustomed to seeing and sometimes experiencing violence. Not only threats of it, but also the real deal. I learned that the key is to always remain calm and not be provocative. To be safe, I always was prepared to flick off the safety of the loaded 380 in my front pants pocket. So he's always carrying a gun. <laughs> Very safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... There's a couple more of these. I'd been a junkie since late 1998 and had signed up as a paid FBI informant in March of 2000. I'd kept my addiction a secret from my wife, my parents, siblings, grandparents, friends, and the FBI agents who directed my work. I'm what some would call a gun nut and have been since the age of eight. My father's fellow orthodontist and business partner gave me a 410 bore bolt-action shotgun that year. Uh, 1969. Since then, I've bought, sold, hunted with, carried, shot, and traded hundreds of them. (laughs) Rifles, revolvers, shotguns, handguns, you name it. And I either own it, have owned it, 
or fired, or traded, or carried it. In 2012, carrying a Ruger 380 prevented my being robbed of $500 cash and my wallet. An editorial was published about the incident in an Iowa publication. Oh. <laughs> and I've got that. <laughs> Again, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but in North Iowa Today, published June 30th of 2012, Clear Lake man robbed, retrieves his cash, too arrested. Some locals say Todd Blodgett is trigger happy. <laughs> so they've got a whole article here about how like a couple of carnival workers in Clear Lake uh, like stole Todd's wallet while he was sitting on the patio at a bar and then he threatened them with a gun <laughs> to get his wallet back. Well, I guess self-defense. I, I mean, I don't see how that would make him like more dangerous. Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't really understand the point of carrying a gun everywhere you go, especially if you're like dealing in drugs. It's generally like not a great idea, but I guess if you're just some sheltered white guy from Iowa and your dad works for the president, then mm-hmm. part of it, you can get away with it. He's also scared of being around black people all the time. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> it. But like just the multiplier of like having dealing in crack cocaine and also having a gun on you, like mm-hmm. you don't you do not want those problems. <laughs> but again, he's a white sheltered guy from Iowa yeah. whose dad works for the president. So Right. Right. Okay, and we're about to get into some well, I'll say it doesn't get too far, but uh there is an attempted sexual assault in the next part that I'm about to tell you about. So as Todd is leaving that crack house, he's about to get in his car, but he gets a phone call from a six-year-old boy named Corey. Corey lives in the building next to the crack house that Todd just left, and Todd is friends with Corey's mother, Tamika, who he smokes crack with occasionally. Corey tells Todd that there is a bad man in their apartment. And, uh, yeah, Corey is a six-year-old black boy, so as you can imagine, Todd, again, handles his dialogue with grace and sensitivity (laughs) i ain't no he name but him makes me leave i'm in the hall outside our crib got me a key dude trying to have he way with my mama realizing that a first grader knew what was happening made me feel sorry for kids who grow up so fast do you think this is like believable six-year-old dialogue i don't really no (laughs) mama say him ain't supposed to be in they because a judge done slap him with a restraining order uh, Shavika and she playpen, she crying, I be scared, Mr. Todd. Uh, Shavika is his younger sister. And Corey refers to Todd as Mr. Todd, which doesn't have any kind of racist implications <laughs> to me. <laughs> and then in the next paragraph here, anyone who disobeys a court-issued restraining order isn't someone wired to respect the law. And just to go back a bit, this is immediately following Todd telling us about all the illegal weapons he was carrying at all times in Washington, D.C. Yeah. (laughs) And smoking crack constantly. Yeah, while involved like heavily in the drug trade. (laughs) And laundering money for neo-Nazis. And laundering money for neo-Nazis. Although at this point he's with the FBI. He was working for the FBI. Yeah, Yeah, he's got immunity. Right. Well, some partial immunity. (laughs) So, of course, we know Todd is like super awesome. So he, of course, he enters the apartment and stops the sexual assault in progress sidestepping to the right of the broken down bed i was prepared to fire if necessary about three seconds later the creep averted his eyes toward me slowly and fearfully the miscreant turned his head in my direction as he saw the gun his eyes widened and his jaw dropped he said nothing 
I don't miss much at this range, I warned. <laughs> My 380 was two feet from his temple. He froze with fear, staring at the gun. Put your clothes on, loser, or I'll paint the ceiling with your brains. Wow. Again, he's doing dirty, hairy shit. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say earlier, this sounds like it was like, at the very beginning, I was like, this must be like Todd, uh, Todd's superhero origin story. <laughs> yes. He's basically a Frank Miller character <laughs> yeah. in this chapter. <laughs> You'll decide how this ends, asshole, I warned. But the offer, I said, while chambering around, expires in five seconds. <laughs> I'm sure this is exactly how it happened. Yeah, dude. He had just, like, movie-ready dialogue. <laughs> like... <laughs> Stay where you are, shithead. This is loaded with hollow-point rounds. They'll oh blast your God, thick dude. skull wide open and explode on impact. <laughs> <laughs> we know what hollow-points are, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe the guy he's threatening Yeah, doesn't. maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh... <clears throat> the guy tells him not to play God, which is like, <laughs> if a guy is talking to you like that, I don't think that's going to be persuasive. Mm. But Todd replies by saying, God will decide your fate in the afterlife, but I may hasten your exit from this one. <laughs> Tamika's my friend, dirtbag, and I've got two nephews Corey's age, and the wife and I are trying to make a baby. <laughs> you ticked off the wrong guy. A guy who has sex with his wife. <laughs> <laughs> Let me off this time. I be going someplace. You're not calling the shots, homie, and I know where you're going. Where am I going? Eventually to hell. But today, to an emergency room, if you're lucky. He kept his eyes on the gun. Make one move and you've got lunch with the devil. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> lunch with the devil. God, what a cool guy. <laughs> Y'all be calling the cops? Why? So you can rat me out for packing heat and threatening your life? No way. Some liberal judge would blame society for what you did. <laughs> Besides, I like being the judge and the jury. <laughs> oh my god. So I ain't going down for this? Oh, you're definitely going down, but not at the hands of the law. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, the thug replied. Yeah, that's right, because you stepped into a steaming pile of it. Holy fuck, dude. <laughs> it's, it's, oh my god, it's even better. As I slipped a Marlboro into my mouth and lit it, I said, <laughs> <laughs> You should have stayed in bed today. Instead, <laughs> you acted like the loser you are. Now you'll pay. <laughs> fuck, dude. All right, so while Todd has this nameless villain at gunpoint, because he never refers to this guy by name, Corey, the kid, goes upstairs to retrieve friend of the family, Rollo, who uh, comes downstairs and proceeds to beat the shit out of the guy while Todd leaves. And as he's leaving, we get, I high-fived Corey, who told me I was his hero. <laughs> but I'm no hero. Never have been. I've done things that aren't cool. <laughs> This one thing was very cool, <laughs> obviously. I was so snappy with my dialogue. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he played it off fucking cool as hell. But I'll never pass <laughs> up an opportunity to punish anyone who is so cruel to innocent, helpless victims, especially those who harm women, children, or animals. 
We only passed through life once, and I believe we should make this old world a better place than we found it. <laughs> My view on firearms is that what when good people have them, it's good for good people. This He's making the world a better place. <laughs> That's what with, he thinks. Yeah. With everything that he's described up to this point. Mm-hmm. If that makes me a vigilante, so be it. Vigilante or hero? <laughs> Throwback. That's right. That's right. I'm not saying everyone should carry a gun and threaten violence to resolve differences with troublemakers, but it's worked well for me. Well, because he's a fucking conservative, you know, he's the ideal man. The kind of people who should be allowed to carry guns. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. All right. So after this, uh, he takes us back in time to fall 1998. I'm already kind of losing track of the timeline because there's lots of flashing forward and back. Yeah. But the reason we're back here, fall of 1998, according to him, that's when I received a strange phone from a very strange man. I assume he means a strange phone call, but he says he received a strange phone from a very strange man. Sorry, I'm just picking on him for (laughs) (laughs) being bad at typing out his dumb bullshit. I I think that's that's acceptable. (laughs) Uh, Todd was at the University Club in D.C. watching the midterm election results. So in 1998, the midterm elections included his father, Gary Blodgett, who was being elected to his fourth term in the Iowa House of Representatives. Uh, The strange man with the strange phone was William Pierce. Do you know who William Pierce is? Uh, Rings a bell, but not sure. William Pierce was the author of The Turner Diaries. Ah, that's Mm -hmm. why it rings a bell. Mm -hmm. And founder of the National Alliance. Mm -hmm. Does National Alliance ring a bell? Which, that rings a bell. They're the people who put the Nazi flyers in people's mailboxes. Yes, I have received National Alliance propaganda in my own driveway. So, uh, yeah, fun connections here with Todd. Uh, William Pierce offered Todd $250,000 for his shares in Resistance Records. So, we had already heard about Resistance Records in the previous chapter, but Todd refers to them as a corporation called Resistance Records. (laughs) He's talking about them as if this is the first we're hearing of them. (laughs) Todd became majority stakeholder, or stockholder, of Resistance Records after Willis Cardo was convicted of embezzling millions of dollars and declared bankruptcy. Uh, At the time, Resistance Records was making about $50,000 a month in revenue, mostly from selling CDs and DVDs. Hmm. Uh, CDs and DVDs from, quote, 80 heavy metal signed bands and 30 affiliated independent bands. It's a lot of people. And here's some information for you. Today, many of the bands whose music was produced and distributed by Resistance Records are on YouTube. <laughs> wow, wow. The, the model really changed, didn't it? Huh? <laughs> Amazing. Yep. yep, that's pretty cool, huh? Todd meets with William Pierce at some restaurant. Todd gets really into like naming the specific places, like the important places that he frequented in D.C. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not going to give him the the satisfaction of repeating all of that here yeah (laughs) here's a physical description of william pierce pierce was about six foot four trim and wore thick glasses he dressed casually and looked every inch the university physics professor he'd been prior to getting in the business of hatred so at this restaurant the two discuss pierce's interest in the record company uh he says this is a quote from pierce In our 24-7 war against the Jews and all minorities, 
and established proven success like Resistance Records will also help us to attract new members and major money. I told him my goal was to unload my shares. He said, It's my understanding you're not in sync with our views, or supportive of the movement. He glared at me as I admitted to that. (laughs) I'm not into denying that the Holocaust happened, sir, and I don't hate anyone or judge them because of their race, faith, gender, or sexual preference. Oh, sure. (laughs) After, like, literally, like... Well, I guess that was earlier in the chapter when he was discriminating against someone on the basis of their sexual orientation (laughs) and gender identity. Yeah. I mean, he thought it was hilarious, but he wasn't saying they should be imprisoned or anything. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, I admire nothing about Adolf Hitler and David Duke and have contempt for their views and followers. Again, an exchange that I'm sure happened verbatim, just like that. He was such a courageous man, telling William Pierce to his face that he was not racist at all. (laughs) As he continues to negotiate the deal with him. Uh, (laughs) The agreement we reach would enrich me by north of $350,000. I disliked the requirement that I serve as a consultant to the corporation for all of 1999 and through 2000. You'll get five grand a month for that, he said, and we'll pay your office rent. Those provisions meant another $125,000. What I agreed to was morally wrong, and William Pierce was a bad man. (laughs) (laughs) He promoted racism, hatred, anti-Semitism, and violence. His fans were bad people as well. I rationalized by telling myself I was like a lawyer who was representing a low-life client. A low-life who was about to dump $475,000 into my lap. (laughs) I convinced myself that being a party to this didn't make me a bad guy. You convinced yourself. Yeah. But no one else. He's done a lot of uh, convincing himself. He's done, yeah, that's really, (laughs) it seems like, the main, he's like, trying to, like you say, he's trying to come clean, but then also, like, trying also to, like, take credit for all of the cool shit that he did and like (laughs) how he was so able to manage propping up a neo-nazi yeah but also not totally not buying all of the neo-nazi stuff he doesn't hate anyone i wasn't into this at all but i no yeah did profit totally normal line of business for people (laughs) to be involved in uh so a few days after they work out this deal uh william pierce arrives at his office and delivers the first two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the form of a briefcase full of $100 bills. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> and he talks Todd into taking him to the university club for lunch. Uh, the university club is like a really prestigious place where like sitting senators and Supreme mm. Court justices all hang out yeah. and eat meals Rub together. Elbows. yeah. yeah. And, you hear a lot uh, about that in D.C. <laughs> right. And a quote here from Todd, taking Pierce to the university club was like accompanying David Duke to Barack Obama's inauguration. <laughs> and it's something you did, so <laughs> wow. I guess I guess it's like you did that. Uh, as they sat down for lunch, Pierce quietly looked around the room and said, it's a shame the Jews forced their way into this club. Uh, and then we got a series of racial slurs here. Uh, queers and women shouldn't be here. Making a football referee's timeout signal with my hands, I asked him not to speak that way. <laughs> God. Again, such a profile in courage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Making the timeout hand signal. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't say the N-word here. <laughs> okay, then Todd skips ahead a couple more months to January 1999. Uh, Todd is again hanging out at the university club, and he gets too drunk to drive home. 
he runs into a Republican strategist named Greg Stevens. So 99, yeah, so Todd is like fully in the neo-Nazi world here. He hasn't flipped to the FBI yet, and he's Mm -hmm. still associating with like legitimate political operatives regularly. (laughs) Uh, So Greg Stevens recognizes Todd from some campaign finance DVDs (laughs) that Todd had made for a Republican training organization. And Greg had seen Todd's father, Gary, speak at an ALEC conference. Oh, I know Alec. Yeah. They write all the laws. Nasty shit. (laughs) Very, yeah, very Mm -hmm. normal democracy things. (laughs) Uh, Greg offers to let Todd sleep off his drunkness at his nearby condo, and that's when the good shit starts. On page 87, we get... Stevens brought out a cigarette lighter, a razor blade, two small glass cylinders, a small ball of shiny copper wire, and a bag of what looked like white rock, (laughs) which was about the size of a marble. (laughs) This will help you sober up, he said. And then they start smoking the crack, of course. Inhale now. Come on, inhale, inhale, real deep, he said, as I drew in the white smoke. Keep going and twirl the pipe. Take in all your lungs can hold. He instructed as my lungs kept filling. Jesus, you've got powerful lungs, he said, as I (laughs) continued drawing on the pipe. (laughs) Dude, Top Blodgett is so cool. He's got powerful lungs. He can take really big hits of crack. That's right. Ten or twelve seconds later, I was still inhaling, which amazed him. (laughs) You ran track in high school, didn't you? (laughs) I nodded yes and kept on inhaling. After another 10 seconds, he asked if I had been on my college track team. So that's uh, like a full 22 seconds inhaling, I think. Yeah. Which I I don't know. I mean, I don't smoke really, so I, I couldn't tell you if that's normal or not. <laughs> well, it's it's not like you get higher after any point. I mean, there's like a point of diminishing returns, and it's probably like five seconds. Okay, so he's definitely his first time smoking crack doesn't need to be inhaling for 22 seconds straight probably not no (laughs) Uh, greg says you're about to experience the best most relaxing high of your life he was right (laughs) (laughs) todd said that he had he had only ever smoked pot twice prior to this night that was the extent of his experience with drugs yeah pot's for lazy people (laughs) he's a go-getter so he does crack instead Yep. Uh, So Todd and Greg smoke all of the crack that Greg has, and then Greg calls a dealer to bring over another eight ball. And Todd explains this. An eight ball is an eighth of an ounce. (laughs) (laughs) Dang, dude. And you may recall I already said eight ball earlier. (laughs) He had already used this term uh, when he was being held at uh, knife point by Tyree earlier in this very chapter. Did you know the term eight ball before? I did, yes. Yeah. See, like... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's not that. It's pretty common. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as we awaited his dealer, I realized I had just been initiated into the world of crack cocaine by a gay Republican junkie who worked for the former chairman of the Republican National Committee. Yeah, I didn't mention that, but Greg Stevens is also uh, a gay man. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Greg's dealer, Kenny, arrives, and Todd gets his uh, contact info. And he says that over the years, uh, yeah, the three years between that night and when Kenny, the drug dealer, goes to prison, Todd spent over $70,000 getting crack just from this guy, Kenny. Seems to me a pretty 
expensive habit. Yeah. Todd and Greg stay up all night smoking the crack that they got from Kenny. And Todd then uh, worked the entire day following that and felt as though I'd slept like a baby the previous night. (laughs) Todd never smoked with Greg again after that night, but he does give us a weird coda to the Greg story. On the night before the 2005 Academy Awards, the late actress Carrie Fisher found Stevens, who was a guest in her house, dead of a drug overdose. So the first guy he ever smoked crack with died in Carrie Fisher's house. Yeah, that's, I guess, not surprising. I'm pretty sure it's well documented that, you know, Carrie Fisher was pretty into uh, coca leaf products. Yes. Todd has a connection to Carrie Fisher. Pretty cool. Wow. (laughs) Okay, and then he skips ahead another couple months to March 1999. And this is where I wrote a... I had to go back and like figure out where we were in the timeline because he kept skipping around. So the chapter we're reading now started in October 2001 and then jumped back three years, and now it's like inching forward again. Hmm. Okay, so Todd's first assignment working for William Pierce was to negotiate with one of Resistance Records' founders, Jason Snow. So that's one of the guys he talked to in Detroit a while back. Uh, Snow owned the rest of the shares in the company. So I think it was split between Todd and this guy, Jason Snow, with Todd having the controlling interest. Uh, We were introduced to Jason Snow previously, but Todd introduces him here again as if we had never heard of him. (laughs) So he's making a habit of that as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Todd notices that Pierce also pays Snow with a bunch of $100 bills in a briefcase. And this time he notes that every single bill was printed in 1981. So he's curious about this. He follows up figuring out like where William Pierce got a shitload of $100 bills that were printed in 1981. (laughs) And he says, they came from a violent white supremacist named Bob Matthews, who in 1984 robbed a Brinks armored vehicle in California. The heist yielded over $3.6 million, nearly all in hundreds. Uh, Mark Lane, the well-known lawyer who was Liberty Lobby's legal counsel, again, basically introducing someone that we have already been introduced to, but Mark Lane said that Pierce's National Alliance received nearly $3 million of the ill-gotten gains from Matthews. So he's being paid in bank robbery $100 bills. (laughs) Well, I mean, armored truck robbery, which is... Do you think that's a step above or a step below a bank robbery? Uh, armored truck robberies, I mean, it's probably about the same, honestly. It's probably yeah. considered pretty much the same. Yeah. Todd then tells us about a few of the horrible people he met while he was working for Pierce. I'll give you a smattering of that. Wade Michael Page, who in 2012 gunned down 10 innocent members of a sick temple in Wisconsin, killing six. Uh, he also met Eric the Butcher Fairburn. He is currently serving a life sentence for killing two men he shot in cold blood. But Blodgett, of course, does give us this note about him. Eric the Butcher Fairburn detested my distaste for anti-Semitism and racial bigotry and posted Uh, online attacks on me, calling me Fraud Blodgett. (laughs) Oh my god. This evil man that I associated with, he didn't like me because I wasn't bad. I was good. (laughs) Totally. And then the third one is pretty interesting hendrik mobis (laughs) this is like a german guy uh who stabbed and strangled a teenager in germany uh he was imprisoned for five years while he was in prison he wrote recorded and promoted racist anti-semitic music uh called 
National Socialist Black Metal. It's kind of a Varg figure, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and then in 1999, Hendrik Mobis fled to the U.S. Uh, to be protected by Dr. William Pierce. Uh, he was extradited back to Germany in 2000 by FBI agents and U.S. Marshals who found him near William Pierce's compound. As far as I know, he's still there, hating. (laughs) (laughs) He's just a hater. Yep. Uh, Todd continued to represent other clients who were not part of the white supremacist uh, community while he was working for Pierce and hid his crack addiction and his business dealings with the Nazi community. He kept this a secret from his family, who had known about his work with Cardo, but thought he was, like, out of that world now. And he sums this up by saying, I was as addicted to making money as I was to smoking crack cocaine. <laughs> yeah, it's all about the dopamine system, you know? It scratches the same itch. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's chasing that adrenaline high, mm-hmm. as well as the crack cocaine high. Uh, the white supremacist community found out that uh, this guy was working for William Pierce, who was not as dedicated to the cause as they were, which caused some friction among the racists. There was some kind of like Nazi conference where Vajit had to do a presentation about like some business data of Pierce's and he got into an altercation with a racist person at this conference. This woman at the conference like starts hitting on him and he says, I was raised to never hit ladies and I tried to get away, but the bitch latched onto me and groped me. What? Moments later, a hillbilly brute tapped my shoulder. This angry mountain of a man stood a good 6'4", weighed at least 300 pounds, and made Larry the Cable Guy look like George Clooney. His face was red and full of hatred. This would not end well for me. Y'all's a-hittin' on my woman, he roared and took a swing at me. I'm sure this is just as, like, straight and true to life as the previous, uh, thing where he was holding the guy at gunpoint or whatever <laughs> yeah uh so this he got into a fight and like somebody who witnessed this fight must have been a plant among the white supremacists because the details of this situation got to the southern poverty law center's magazine <laughs> uh, which i think is the intelligent report intelligence report <laughs> so blodgett's association with william pierce made it to the media this became like known among his circles after this. Everybody found out he was working with Nazis again. My father still held public office in Iowa, which made matters worse. Several legislators and a top aide to the then-governor of Iowa, Tom Vilsack, asked him about it. (laughs) Ding. Yeah. Uh, And then David Siegel, or Seagal, of the Washington Post, called Todd and asked him if he had brought Pierce to the university club. So, of course, him bringing Pierce to this prestigious institution, that's the real story. (laughs) And Todd did not lie about this. He didn't want to, well, I'll let him speak for himself. Dishonesty isn't cool. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, dude, he just intersperses just like very sage, wholesome advice throughout his book. It's impressive. Uh Philosophy, Blodgett. And any protection it may provide is always undeserved, in my view. (laughs) A page one story appeared in the Post's style section on January 12th, 2000. It rocked my world and everyone in it. (sighs) So this Post article 
tells all about Todd's association with neo-Nazis. It also draws the link between him and Lee Atwater. (laughs) So it pisses everybody off. Everyone's mad at Todd. And that's where we end the chapter. Dang. I wonder how he's going to get himself out of this messed up, complicated situation. Mm -hmm. This is the beginning of the year 2000. So Todd does not start off the new millennium on a good foot. (laughs) What a guy. Yeah, this is, uh, it's a fairly interesting book just because, like, it's kind of like, I don't know, like a tabloid, you know? Like, he's telling all these, he's airing his dirty laundry, essentially. And it's like, we don't give a fuck about Todd Blodgett, but he does have a lot of interesting dirty laundry, you know? Like, I can't see anyone reading this, I mean, obviously, maybe the North Iowa press editor (laughs) or whatever the fuck. It's like, oh yeah, Todd Blodgett, he's a good guy. But anyone else reading this is just like, which again, it's very limited audience, but <laughs> it's like, wow, this is scandalous. Mm-hmm. It's like reading one of those like Mark Halperin politics books. Yeah, there's, <laughs> I guess there that's a dirt. whole genre. I mean, there's a lot of that shit out there. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And I mean, I I assume a lot of this is uh, embellished a bit on Blodgett's part, but oh yeah, <laughs> it is interesting. Oh yeah, interesting shit. Uh, he's not a very good writer. Much worse than Dobrian, but this is ostensibly but, nonfiction, so that so, adds a, a level to it. Right, I was going to say, but the subject matter is much more interesting than Dobrian. Right, this is stuff that, in general, really happened. <laughs> yes. And is a bit more consequential than a professor at a small liberal arts college having sex with a student. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and being canceled <laughs> Yeah, for his opinions about the mascot. <laughs> so next time around i'm going to read two more chapters three and four chapter three is subtitled enter the fbi oh yeah i mean that's yeah i'm I'm looking for it i would like to hear how this uh finishes up but uh good luck to whoever follows me up (laughs) yeah i think we've covered like so much ground just like yeah well he jumps all over you know yeah yeah in the four intros in the first two chapters it's like damn Mm. what's left yeah (laughs) he's been to prison he's like 20 percent of this maybe (laughs) yeah well uh thanks evan for talking to me about this shit for almost two hours (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) anytime it's my job it's my second job actually yeah but (laughs) we'll we'll do what we can to make this more of a job for you (laughs) yeah and yeah, thanks for listening on Patreon. Yeah, thanks to the people who make this kind of a second Sh- job. Shocked that there's some people who might actually listen to this, but <laughs> you know, thank you. Yeah, and we did um, recently establish a new goal for our Patreon. So if we reach a hundred dollars a month at some point, we will listen to and review the Slipknot album Iowa, as recommended by our friend Brian Quimby. <laughs> Yeah, and it's, you know, I've never I've never listened to Slipknot and it's like I was right in the I I could have listened to Slipknot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was it was popular at the same time when I was like listening to like Weezer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I I'm looking forward to hopefully doing that episode. So if you are a patron and you think that would be cool, it would be above and beyond for you to maybe suggest to any of your friends that they should also get on our Patreon, but uh you don't have to do that, but it would right. be, it's already very nice of you to do any of this, <laughs> right. listen to us at all. But if that's something you're into, you could make it happen. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. I'll see you next time for Republican Crackhead, different book club review number three. <laughs>
three, right? Yeah, this was two. So three. yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Goodbye. Okay. <laughs>